there's so many people that will come to you and they will say, I want to look like Rihanna. I'm like, you don't want to look like Rihanna. You want what Rihanna feels like when you see Rihanna. Welcome to the Idea Generation Podcast, a show about creative entrepreneurs. My name is Noah Callahan Bever, and each week I get to talk to some of the most innovative ideators in culture and try to figure out how they make their creative decisions. The best way to support us is to leave a rating or a review on your favorite podcast platform. It only takes a second, but it can make a world of difference in helping others discover the show. And of course, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. On this week's show, I'm delighted to host one of the most talented and most successful celebrity stylist and creative directors, Jason Bolden. From being discovered by superstar Gabrielle Union to today being afforded the opportunity to work across Hollywood's A-list, from Angelina Jolie and Dwayne Wade to Nicole Kidman and Michael B. Jordan, not to mention trendsetters like Lena Waithe and Taco from Odd Future, Jason has redefined what it means to be a stylist. You gotta understand, styling is one of the most misunderstood trades in the entertainment industry. And I say that having worked as a magazine editor for close to 20 years, where I utilized hundreds of stylists on like a thousand shoots, most notably and most hands-on personally with each and every complex cover. Through that process, I developed tons of respect for the stylists we worked with and acknowledged them as totally integral to the success of those products. However, it wasn't until I developed a relationship with Jason Bolden, who, full transparency, I'm grateful to count as one of the many amazing friends that I inherited via my wife, Deirdre that I truly started to understand the scope of the role. Sure, he does help the famous get some fits off, but Jason is really more of a brand architect, defining a celebrity's visual identity and aesthetic language. And then, with intention and consideration, he helps them evolve that brand based on trend and the talent's personal journey, which in and of itself is an entirely massive undertaking, but it also kind of buries the lead that while he does that, he's concurrently behind the scenes helping them forge this fashion identity into a monetizable facet of their business. Pretty mind-blowing, right? Anyhow, on this week's episode, I had an absolute blast talking with Jason about all of the above, as well as what it's like being a creative whose work product is subject to so much public scrutiny and also so subjective in terms of its perceived success slash failure. Jason is a fountainhead of insight, and so much of his thinking about art, commerce, network, and creative entrepreneurship is broadly applicable to anyone looking to take ideas out of their head and turn them into a business. But enough from me. Let me let Jason tell it. The Idea Generation podcast is brought to you by Tres Generaciones Tequila. Jason, thank you. Welcome to Idea Generation. Thanks for having me. It's always an illuminating thing thinking about where people come from and their, their families and how that dynamic plays into their professional lives. So how would you say that your parents' professional life informed your ambitions? Well, I grew up in the Midwest in a classic Americana way, if you will. My mother is an educator. My father was all things. My grandparents were physicians and chefs. So I grew up in a space of kind of classic, but there was some creativity there. And I was able to explore along with having these rules of quintessential 
American dreams. So it, it helped support me in so many different ways when I think of being an artist or loving art. They allowed me to kind of explore, but also gave me these really messed up American ideas of boundaries. I was able to like juggle art, but also have this kind of like these boundaries of like, how are you going to pay your bills? So it was, it was pretty interesting, but it, it helped me, A, know how to process work ethic, also process dollars and cents of survival. So do you see the things that you saw in the house playing out in your professional life every day now? Yeah, I, I come from a place where my mom was never really truly fashion oriented. She was more interior oriented. And she did this really interesting thing where she would transition seasons with our house. Like when it turned into fall, the house shift, the color shift, the paints on the wall shift, the pills on the sofa shifted. In the summertime, things got lighter, things got brighter, things got even more softer. And I realized for me in my life, that particular thing that I never knew would be any type of adjustment or live or breathe anything into my, my work, I see it every day. Like I, I adjust with clients. I adjust with what's happening in the planet. I adjust when I go to different parts of the world. So those type of adjustments, I never really knew it would like penetrate and adjust and add to my, to my, to my work. Interesting. I know as a teenager, you got into skating. Mm -hmm. What was it about skate culture that drew you in? I mean, for me, skate culture, growing up skating, it was just like the coolest thing to kind of just like, just get away and, and, and it was just so fast. I was able to go places very, very fast and get to see things outside of just my neighborhood. And I was able to go into this particular neighborhood, which was called the, the U-City Loop in St. Louis, Missouri. Very alternative, super like edgy, cool, in a pocket of like uber wealth. Like it was surrounded by Washington University. So it was where the, the I don't want to say the outsiders, but kind of like these really quirky and weird, as people were probably called back then, spaces. So it allowed me to go to places very fast and see all of these interesting, cool things. And it just so happened that all of my friends, we would meet up on our skateboards there. And it was bigger than just skateboarding. For me, it actually allowed me to see art and see people in a, in a very fast and quick way. Because of the proximity of where you where this actually took place, it took you outside of your neighborhood? Yeah, my, I mean, my neighborhood was really great. It was fantastic, but it was classic Midwest conservative. Everybody's parents were like nine to five. There was nothing about art or eclectic anything. This particular pocket was close in proximity, but it felt so far away. It was like, there was a tattoo artist and there was like piercings there. And it was just like, it was this one really cool, interesting hair salon, which was called, it was called Knots. And it was a, this woman used to do locks there. I got to see a range of different type of people that I would only see in magazines or on television. I used to think they were all normal because I got to see people actually be themselves. So for me, the skate culture, allowed me to experience just art and life. It's funny, you mentioned seeing icons on TV and in, in, in magazines. 
And I think for, for me growing up, if you looked at my high school bedroom, it was completely covered with cutout pictures from The Source and Rap Pages and Ego Trip and all the different hip hop magazines at the time. And there are certain outfits that are so indelible that I, I can still remember like Redman wearing the Helly Hansen fit in The Source or like Nas in the Columbia jacket yeah, yeah. shot in, in Queensbridge. Are there any moments that were just sort of had you stuck as, as a teenager? Mine were like all across the board. And again, growing up in a household in the Midwest and having like really interesting, but still yet conservative parents and people around you. Like I grew up watching, for example, Sidney Poitier to surf with love. And I would watch this super chic and just smart and smooth black man in London teaching these kind of like bad, horrible <laughs> British kids and just watching how smooth he was and watching how put together he was. And then on the other side of it, I would watch things like Nirvana, Nine Inch Nails, Rage Against the Machine. And I would see that type of vibe and just kind of how like not put together, but so put together they were. And then on the other hand, I would see stuff like Tony Braxton, who was like, for me, was the beginning of me understanding fashion and such like this visual hype Williams vibe of the time and just seeing this woman being so styled and like from Gucci Tom Ford days to like Versace. It was just, those are the things for me that stuck with me watching those videos of like Unbreak My Heart and then pairing it back to my Kurt Cobain days and then also merging that with Sidney Poitier with Serve With Love. So that range for me was very iconic. And the things that were on my wall were things that looked like that. My mom would come in here and she'd be like, what is going on? This is the weirdest thing. I don't know what you're doing in there, Jason. Like, we need help. So my range was also very different in the sense of palette and collecting style and art. In the 2020s, people having a very broad swath of influences is totally normal. In 1994, 1995, the world was not quite like that. How were you being received both from the family and from people around you outside for having such an eclectic set of uh, influences? I mean, everybody thought it was weird. Like I, like, I was the epitome of code switch. I was super popular in high school, so I had friends across the board, right? Some days I would, I would hang out with the golf kids, my skater friends, the jocks, the cool kids. Like, I was across the board, so I was able to talk to everybody. And it was really weird, because I went through this phase where, like, Joni Mitchell was my vibe, or, like, I was the kid who also loved... Dave Matthews, but I also went home and I was like, I could tell you the whole Machiavelli through and through. And then also on the same time, I could do every song from Anita Baker. I was able to like live in all those spaces. And for my, I can use my brothers for an example. They would be like, yo, what, huh? Like they would, they would hear me playing certain stuff in my room. Like, why are you listening to Savage Garden? But at the same time, I'm the first person who can tell you everything Nas has ever done. It was a blessing at the same time and being able to like communicate with everybody about anything. I was really lucky that I grew up in a space where like acceptance was like just a thing. Like that's just what we did. When you graduated, you went to Northwestern and you were pre-med to start. Um, that's a pretty far cry from where you've ended up. So far, <laughs> so far yes. 
What was your interest in medicine and how did you decide to pivot? I never really had an interest in medicine. I grew up in a space where everybody was a doctor, attorney, an educator, a cop. It was very quintessential. My godfather is a heart surgeon. So I, I really looked up to him and he was completely a, fa- a father figure for me then and now. So I was just like, how could I get the closest to emulate and mirror something that felt like that? He was a cool, he was the coolest guy. He had the coolest Rolex. He had the most amazing red Porsche and he was just like smooth. So I, in my head, I was like, and, and chic. So I was like, okay, I could still live in this world of like coolness, but I didn't know anybody who worked in fashion. That wasn't a thing. The closest thing I thought about was fashion was the person who worked at Neiman Marcus Dillard's or J.C. Penney's in St. Louis. Like that was the closest thing. Uh, so I had to lean into what felt still cool or had some type of sparkliness to it. And my godfather, Dr. Knight, like he kind of had that. So I leaned into the the, the closest thing, and I was like, I guess I'm going to go into medicine. And I wanted to go to a place that was still close enough, but far enough, which was Chicago, which is metropolitan. It's one of the leading, a lot of people don't know this, it was like one of the leading spaces in fashion. Most people, most people who come from fashion or, or, or have some type of really interesting, cool connection with fashion are from the Midwest and it's Chicago. Interesting. So... What was it that happened when you got to school that gave you that confidence to step out of the pre-med program and to switch to the arts? I got to Chicago a week early. I met someone who's still a really good friend. Um, I met her and she walked in and I'll never forget I was in a store. She walked in and I was going to go spend my only $500 that I was supposed to have, I was supposed to stretch me out for food. I went into a store and I bought a designer backpack and it was $475 in tax. It was like I had to take out cash to pay the rest. And I saw this girl walk in and she had, to me and to people in the fashion world, she had at this particular time, Marc Jacobs was at Vuitton and she walked in with the Louis Vuitton Stephen Sprouse pochette and she started talking to me about art school that she was at. And that stuck with me, and I would go to school, and I would just daydream. And then eventually one day I just said, you know what? Excuse my French. Fuck it. I want to I try this, this art thing. Still had no clue what a stylist was, a creative director. Never knew what that was. And I started hanging out with more art people, and then they start talking about fashion and design. And that's kind of what triggered me to just take a leap of faith and hopefully not be killed by my parents. But <laughs> that's where I landed. I didn't tell them. and You didn't tell your parents? I didn't tell, I didn't tell them. I just stopped. I just stopped. They were still paying, but then I stopped. And then eventually I told them, and it wasn't received well at all. It was kind of like, you need, a, you need to know. You have to. How are you? And it was a, a really that classic. I'm going to say this a lot. It's that classic American fear of like, you have to do this. We know this works. And I went from gut instinct and I had that, all that fear, all that did was constantly push me to, to do and try things. And it was all trial and error. I worked at so many luxury, you know, retail from Saks to Cynthia Raleigh to 
uh, the cold milk. It was just like I worked at all of them. And then I just had to create this hustle. And I start selling vintage clothes to like my college friends. I, I was curious, what was, what were the most instructive things that you learned in that time that you were selling luxury goods, you know, like working at Cynthia Riley and, and Vuitton and whatnot? People don't know what they want. I, I learned that and people, people don't buy products, they buy a feeling that you give them. And I realized that by working in all those places. I was like, wow, people aren't going coming to these stores to show up to buy like the cool clothes. Like that's the bonus. They're showing up for this relationship and these these feelings that I give them. That's what I end up I end up taking away from everything. So now in my business now I realize it's just like it's how I show up. That pe- what people are buying. It's it's how what I give in those intimate moments is why people come back or they request me. So it has nothing to do with product. It's all about my relationship and that whatever that vibration that I decide to bring to that person. And the clothes and the shoes and the jewelry is all a bonus. It's interesting when you think about. Obviously, styling has many different components to it. How much of it is your eye and your sense of the creative? And then how much of it is the salesmanship and the ability to manage these relationships? 20% is the actual merchandise. 20% is the actual merchandise. 20%, part of that 20% is your point of view, right? So that combined create, you can curate and cultivate a look, right? The other, that huge amount that's left over is reading a room and showing up in this like shining light of magicalness that anything you want can possibly happen. So I show up all the time as this magician. Like you would never know that the sneakers that you wanted, somebody had to stand in line for it, or I had to call this person, or I had to offer something else up in order for Noah to have the sneaker that he really wants, those limited edition XYZs. So that's the huge percentage of that. It's bringing that particular moment of magic and fantasy and never hearing the word no. In my particular business, what, what I'm good at is you never experience no. And that is more than a Dior gown with a Cartier necklace. They're like, oh, you said it's yes. It's yeah. This is the only place that I get to hear yes. You know, and we live in a world where everybody has been told no so much that I give you this space of comfort of being like, yeah, that works. Cool. Yeah. A lot of times people never realize that I've, I've said no the whole entire time. In, in those moments, as you started working in retail and you start to activate this superpower, were you conscious of it? Or at what point did it hit you that this was a, a sort of extraordinary talent that you had? I realized it very early on and it was kind of bad how I realized it. I was able to maneuver and move through school very easily with that. I realized there was this space of charisma and ease that I had when it came to talking to people and romancing people. I I realized very early on it was more about romance. And once 
I really, really, really gathered it and knew how to actually use that for good. It was in Chicago and it was in retail when I was like, oh, this is what you, this is how I can do it. I would say things and they were, I was being extremely honest and I, and, and it just turned into something larger than me. And I've just always kind of been able to read a room, read a room and just know what that person wants, what that person needs, what that person missed out on yesterday. I was able to actually like, I could reignite that, that pain or that missing or that no. And then by the time they leave me, everything that, that happened that past day that was no, and it was the trauma, I was able to smooth it over. And now we're in paradise. It's the, it's, it is the weirdest thing, but I realize what I do is exactly what I want for myself every day. So I just give people what I want for myself every day when I talk to them. Do you think about it in a conscious way? Do you strategize on how to, I don't want to say manipulate, but how to... Well, no, I mean, also fair. Manipulation, yeah. I think... <laughs> exactly, but when you go into a situation, are you consciously thinking about the the room, the personalities, and how to balance it all? Or is it something that just comes to you? It is it's like instinctual. It is instant. It is instinctual. It is instant. And I I honestly, I, I, I don't think about it. I honestly do not think about it. And just trying to think about it, I don't, I don't remember an experience of being like, I'm going in to do this. I normally go in super nervous, still to this day, working with the most impactful culture changing people on the planet. Every time I meet someone new or start working with someone, I am fully internally paralyzed and nervous. But to know me is to know I don't show up that way. I'm like on, right? But I am par I'm physically paralyzed with, I'm anxious, I'm nervous, and I'm just like, Whew. and then once I, once the door opens, it's so strange how it just disappears. And then this person, my representative shows up. It's, it's the wildest thing. Were there any experiences in particular that you think pulled that out of you as a, as a child, as a teenager? To be, you know, pretty obviously open in this interview. I grew up in a, a super, um, not, and I, when I say conservative, I don't mean in like views and rights. I just mean conservative as in the sense of like classic Americana way of picture perfect situation like that. But I also grew up as internally as an artist, internally as completely different than my siblings and also gay. The way I wanted to show up is like I had to make sure that I was everybody else around me felt good about me being so now when I, I think for me that helped as, as traumatic as it possibly sounds, it actually helped me adjust to me and then everything, everybody else is secondary, you know? So through those years of like adjusting, adjusting, making sure everybody feels good, I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. I figured out that like, wow, if I, if everybody adjusts to me, I'm chilling. So that's where I think in those, those spaces of walking in, feeling paralyzed and feeling anxious, I think when that door opens, in that split second, 
that conversation that I've had with myself of being like, oh, they will adjust to you. And, and that's what normally happens. So you, you leave school and you move to New York and you open a vintage store um, down in Soho. How did you put that together as a you know, 20-something? Where did you get the inventory from and, and the startup capital and all that kind of stuff? I had no startup capital. It was not that. I was selling vintage clothes in Chicago to the coolest, hottest girls everybody wanted to date. And I would meet them at the store. And I would meet them at my retail plate where I worked. And I'm like, oh, you know what? You know what you can wear with this? So I would go to the south side of Chicago. So wait, so you're selling them clothes in the luxury I'm store. selling you and Chloe to all the stuff. And then you're telling them, but on the side, I've got this other thing. Yes. This other thing that's going to make this and it's going to feel more special. Like, you know how I many people walked in the store and seen the same thing that you're trying to? I know we love it. It's great, whatever. But I got this other thing. So I would go to this vintage store on the south side of Chicago. And this is when I talk about how important Chicago is to fashion. It's because at a particular point, and still to date, those those humans spent so much money on fashion because that was the foundation. You think about the Midwest, it's the middle of America, it's the foundation of everything else that's going on. I would go to these, in these dilapidated neighborhoods, and I would go, they would have these days where they're like, Citizen, um, Citizen Wednesday or half off Mondays. And I would go in there and give you a trash bag. Anything you can put in a trash bag for $25. So I got so hip to how to shop. And initially I would just go there and be like, I just want some cool, I just need some, I need some old Levi's. And I would go. And then one day I went and I saw, I'll never forget, I saw Gucci Shearling. And I was like, what? And I was like, okay, put it in the bag. Then I just started to now I would go strictly, I would go look through clothes from the top of the hanger and I would just push back. And this way, all you're seeing is the labels. So I would see Asi Clark, Issey Miyake, Dior, Gucci, blah, blah, blah. And I would just, th- I wouldn't even look. I just saw the labels, I would just throw them in. I would get them back to my apartment. I would look at them. I'm like, oh, this would be fresh. Like, what if I just cut this, like made it short, just make, bring it to life, make it more modern. And then I start selling and I would have people over. We would just drink and they, would, I mean, I'm selling stuff for like 10 to $35. Right? It was like Gucci, all the, all the good stuff. So one day, one of my friends was like, let's go to New York. Let's just like go to a flea market and set up a flea market. Cut to, we get there, we set up a flea market. It's whack. It's off of like Westside Highway and um, Hell's Kitchen, like random. And it was whack. So we, we walk in in Soho and long story short, we call this number. This kid picks up. And it's the son of the owner of all the buildings. And you can tell he's like party kid. He was like, you, you got $1,500, you can, you, can you can rent the space for the weekend. We're like, word, like great, this is amazing. We get the space, we open it up. We're only supposed to be open for Saturday to Sunday. We get there, we talk him out, we give him the $1,500. He was like, I was like, well, can we just set up, just, we just want to set up so we can open Saturday morning. So we're setting up, doors open. And people walking past. Music is, you know, we like listening to music, music blasting. People are walking in and people are like, oh, what is this place? I don't know this place. And I'm just like, oh, word. Like, and I, I, I see it. It's like Meg Ryan. Like, it's everyone walking. I'm like, holy. I'm just like, okay, so the uh, $200. They're like, oh, okay, cool. 
I'm like, oh shit, like this is wild. Uh, uh, 150? Oh, sure. Uh, 500. Uh, oh, cool. By Sunday, we made $75,000. Shit. It was like, it was, it was, it was a hot, like that hot Soho. <laughs> it was like, it was wild. And that was it. And we basically were the first people to coin pop up shop. So that's how it happened. And we had no lease. We had nothing. We were paying the, the son. Um, and he never knew how much we were making. And I was like, oh, you need $1,500? That's it? Oh, okay, cool. Like cash. He would come in like clockwork every Wednesday. Boom. And then eventually I, I began to meet people. I mean, Vogue wrote as like, Vogue wrote as it was like the model's hangout. It was, then we started reading books about it. It was where African Bombada, like, it was like his studio. It was like Keith and like Basquiat. They would all hang out down oh, in there. This, in this space? Yeah, 112 Green. That's crazy. It's a book about it. A lot of people who grew up in the neighborhood who would come into the space and they would just like tell us the stories about the space. And we're like, yeah, they were like, Shaka Khan, everybody, every, this used to be the space. You'd come down and you'd see the book. And it's like, it was wild. Like you would just see all the stuff that would happen there. And it just turned into a life of its own. Like all the cool kids, the downtown cool kids would come and they would just hang out and we would have alcohol there. Probably shouldn't have that, but everybody would come and they would like drink and hang out. And like, and then all of a sudden there would be people from like Ralph Lauren just walking down the street and then they would stop in. And then they would be like, what is this place? And then all of a sudden we began to do design inspiration for those companies. And it was just like out of nowhere. It was just like, okay, you're sitting in these design rooms and they would say, hey, all we want you to do is go find white t-shirts. And I'm like, that easy. Fly, get on a plane, fly to fly wherever, bunch of white t-shirts. And then all of a sudden you would see your thing that they bought from you on the runway. And you'd be like, oh my God, that's the thing that we showed them, but it's in red now. Like, so you would see that. So it kind of, that was the beginning of, that was kind of the beginning of my career, but I was strictly based on retail. And there would just be so many people who would come into the store. It was just, it was it was honestly wild. And you got to see celebrities at their most vulnerable, like when they're shopping and they're like trying things on and it doesn't work or they're feeling weird about it or they really like it. And because it's vintage, it's one of one. So it's like, it was, it was actually pretty wild. So as you're doing this, what were you thinking as far as your career? Did you have any sort of like medium or long-term goals or sense of like where this was going? Or was it just like, yo, this, we're making money. This is amazing. Each day is more fun than the last. It was literally, we are making so much money and I'm going out every night. Like I got to be around clothes. I got to be around fashion. I got to meet these most incredible people in New York City who would tell me all these fantastic stories. There was never a moment where I was thinking about what was next because I was so full. Like if you could only imagine how the type of people that you get to meet on a day-to-day -day basis like that. And in Soho, you have the classics and you have the internationals that come there. And some of my best friends are now some of those people that I met there. I was going to say, what, what was that like coming from St. Louis? And obviously you get a taste of it in Chicago, probably working in, in those yeah. luxury retailers. But to be in the heart of Manhattan and hobnobbing with celebrities and executives from 
different entertainment, fashion, yeah. et cetera. I mean, it was wild. Like first meeting Rihanna, meeting Rihanna who's coming in like, whoa. And then also there's moments where like, I'm talking about the height of Lindsay Lohan. Like the height of Lindsay Lohan, like, like you know what I'm saying? It was like the height of that. It's just like, it was, it was really funny. I got to witness like, in real time, what people were saying, like the Us Weekly and the People magazine, the high, like seeing people being chased by paparazzi, it was actually, it was great. I remember going to the Mercer and sitting there every morning, because at this particular time, I lived downtown and I would go to the Mercer to have a coffee. And I'll never forget sitting across from Karl Lagerfeld. Karl Lagerfeld was sitting there, he, it was Karl Lagerfeld, and I think it was Cara Delevingne. I can't, it, I almost believe it was her. And, and I'm sitting across and I'm like, wow. And I, to my head, I was like, oh, why did I wear this Comme des Garçons sweater? Like, in my, I'm just playing all these things. I'm like, oh, I knew I should have, like, had a vintage Chanel jacket I should have wore. And then saying to myself, I think that might have been the tipping point, saying to myself is one day I'm going to get to work with a major model and I'm going to go, I don't, Carl Lagerfeld's going to know who I am. And here you go. I'm backstage at the car, one of his last shows and he was sitting on the sofa with one of my clients who ended up getting a contract with him and I'm I'm there and he says something really kind to me and then here comes Pharrell walking in and here comes the, and it's just like and it's it's really really wild how like just how it happened so New York was you know New York was a magical fashion moment for me I so I understand that in that period you meet Gabrielle Union and become friends and that she inadvertently ends up sparking what would become your styling career. How did that happen? It was just one of those things where it was just like, Gab and I become really good friends and she uh, she goes, are you going to Art Basel? And I'm like, um, oh, I'm not really gonna go. She was like, you should come, you should come. And I'm like, all right, cool. So, and she was like, well, bring me something to wear. And this is just like frank conversation. Like, all right, cool, I'll bring you some stuff. I got a bunch of stuff. And, I bring, I bring like three or four dresses and it was like a Lanvin, like a vintage 1960s Lanvin and like an old Azadina Laya and there was probably something else. And she goes to this event and she wears the, this like multicolored polyester Lanvin, like, like hostess with the mostest dress. And it was just in my head, it was just like, I'm just helping a friend, we're going out that night. And then I, a day later, a couple of days later, it's on Vogue. And then it says, Jason Bolden, purveyor of style. I was like, huh? What? Huh? Like, what is happening? And it kind of snowballed into that. And all of a sudden, like, I was like, oh, I, I, I'm a stylist. And it was just like, okay, didn't know how to, I never knew about sending a request email, didn't know about how it all worked, what the politics were, like, how up and down, how shady, how like sad and happy, you know, the business is, but that just, that sparked it all. Tres Generaciones is the tequila for dreamers and doers who persevere against all odds. It's made from 100% blue agave, distilled with water sourced from an ancient aquifer beneath the tequila volcano, and triple distilled for unrivaled smoothness. The brand's been around since 1973, and their demonstrated track record of success is the reason why Tres is eager to champion creatives with perseverance everywhere. So whether you're already at the top of your game or just setting out on your creative voyage, let Tres be your running partner on this journey. It can be easy to see Jason's entry into styling as the product of good timing, but it's clear that there's more to it than that. 
His gift for reading people and making them comfortable enough to open up to him may be intuitive, but his application of that gift through his career seems very intentional. Combine that gift with Jason's encyclopedic knowledge of fashion and brands, and you have a formula for people to feel really good about themselves while wearing really beautiful clothes. Combine that with his knack for identifying and vibing with people blessed with superstar charisma, and you start to understand why Jason spent this last Oscar season working with a literal who's who of celebrity talent. Given that Idea Generation is a podcast about creative entrepreneurship, I wanted to pick Jason's brain about the nitty-gritty of what goes into being a stylist. And any listeners interested in pursuing dreams in that field are going to want to listen to our conversation in the next section. But first, I was curious about some more of the key people who helped him in his journey. After you put the dress on Gab and got the accolades in, in Vogue, you mentioned that things snowballed from there. When you think back to that period of really making that transition from being a, a vintage retail guy to a celebrity stylist, what were the most consequential clients that you added and also looks that you put together? And what were the things that really kept pushing the dominoes over? I did Taraji P. Henson for the Oscars for Hidden Figures. Taraji had on this crushed velvet navy blue off-the-shoulder dress by Alberto Ferretti. And this was my first time at the Oscars. So she took me to the Oscars. So that was one of those big, 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 big moments. And I think about my client Yara Shahidi and being able to do a lot of those things that most people never get to do, being at one point a Chanel girl, a Prada girl, and now a Dior girl. It's kind of unheard of in my business. I've been able to like tap into so many different things. There's this point in time where you no know, stylists, particularly black stylists, only had the capability of working with black talent that reached back for them or, or wanted them. But now I'm in a space where I have people like Angelina Jolie, Nicole Kidman, I have people like that who are like reaching out and, and want to work with you. It's a beautiful shift. And when those people decide to use their fashion privilege and give me a platform or support me, you see the doors open in a different, in a very different kind of way versus when I work with my, my other clients. So it's, it's, it's this, the business is, 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 it's very, very interesting. It's very interesting. I know that while you definitely embrace these new opportunities with these huge mainstream white Hollywood talents, it's also very important to you to maintain your foundation. Oh, that's my foundation. Exactly. I, oh, listen, you know, I am like, what? Let's just always be completely clear and transparent. The only reason where I am where I am is because of black women. That is a point. Like, and, and the reason that I will always work and forever work will be because of Black women. That is it. Fortunately, and nice that I get to work with everyone now, which how it should be. We should be able to work with everybody. You should show up with talent and work. That is it. Well, Jason looks like he can do this job. Amazing. Sure, you can work with whoever. But to be completely clear, I will always and forever be indebted to black women because I will always and forever work because of black women. That is a fact. It's great. I mean, that, that is real. So I have, I mean, that, it is what it is. Everything else is lovely and it's great and it's a bonus and it's nice to actually, to meet people and know that people see people. 
and that's it's so lovely but we worked in a business for a very long time and we still work in a business where uh, the discrimination and these ideas of you because of how you look can transfer over to your capability of working is the wildest thing yes i mean it is uh among the most fucked up parts of the, the world, world. <laughs> the world, world. And and the world you mentioned taraji and i know that she was like gab among your earliest supporters and also that she played a serious role in helping you to make that transition mm-hmm. w- what happened how did that how did she end up putting I that met, battery in your back i met taraji by accident i, w- I was going to sanaa lathan's house and she was there and i met her and we all were drinking and we were just hanging out there was no space of trying to create a relationship a working relationship but it just became a friendship and then one day all of a sudden i get a call and i i i do her for a campaign or commercial or something and it just happened and fortunately i got to work with somebody while they were on their journey right like every and every time and i say this to 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 all the kids that i talk to when your client goes to a place if they're nominated for oscar emmy a globe or grammys critics choice whatever you're nominated because that is also your particular moment as a creative to actually show your work and you're showing up and she allowed me for every one of those carpets to show my capability and show that like oh he can do oh wow that's amazing so she was able she's like she gave me free range and she was like i trust you do it that's why i hired you do it and it was really beautiful and it allowed me to just kind of create memories and create these beautiful fashion icon moments and i've been lucky from then to now to have clients who still allow me to kind of to do those things i think of yara at the the met and we did this reference of Josephine Baker who left America to go to Paris and was well received and Yard wore a version of this couture Dior dress and we remade it for Yard for the Met and that thing for me was like it was those images are breathtaking and you walk into I walk into shoot sometimes and I see the image on people's mood boards and like it's wild I remember walking into sets and I see images and I'm like oh that's cool but now to walk in and see your imagery and it's still funny and not to toot horn or anything but it's so funny when people don't know you and then you walk into sets and like all of your photos are up there from all the clients that you work with and they're like so we're thinking about like we want to do something like this and I'm like oh, okay okay cool cool and I d- then I wait for the client to walk in and be like look at this is all of us and then the photographer or the production team was like oh so it's actually i besides that i think it's actually amazing to walk into the space and see that my references are what we're looking at where are my references when i used to go on set i used to just be like i just need to see a shot a photo and like now i'm my photos are next to the shot a photos you know what i mean so it's wild that's dope i It's funny you say that about Yara and, and just and Taraji and her rise. And I, I think about this, and this goes a, a, across a lot of sort of creative disciplines where you're working with talent. When you're growing up and you're a young person in the industry, you're looking at the stars of today and the people who work with them, and you, you want to be there. But as, as you're speaking to, it's actually to get there, the key is to identify the that person of tomorrow and to create those relationships and to be a part of that movement because you and they will both arrive 
together. Yes. I thought it's a really interesting topic to talk about because some people just want to go straight to the, like I said at the top of this, everybody wants to go straight to the finale. Everybody wants to be right there. And if you are really smart and you really love this and you really want to do it and you really want to figure out how to be impactful. A lot of times you have to find people that you can start with because that's growth, that's creating trust. And you get to share those moments and experience those moments at the same time with other people who are doing the exact same thing. So it's some freedom in that, it's some creative freedom in that, that I, I think is, it's really smart. So for people who are launching into this, you know, there's a part of it like, you have to suck it up in a case of just like, you. it may not be the most money, it may not be the person with the most visibility at that particular moment, but this is a chance to hone in on your art and like actually truly practice. Because for me, it was all practice. It was all trial and error. Like I was on a W shoot with her and I, like Edward Innerfeld was there and this is somebody for me in my business. I'm like, oh, Edward, he's the, he's the cream of the top, you know? And I, I walk over to him and I just say, hey, I just really need some help. I'm not getting a lot of responses on X, Y, and Z. And he goes, well, who do you want to talk to? And I was like, I would love to put on a John Batista Valley dress. And he's like, hold on. Do, 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 do. Puts the phone up to my ear, it's Jamba. And it's like, great, and we got, we got the dress. And then still today, I'm, st I'm the best and closest friends with him. And I have people like that calling me, saying, who's the next girl you have? Because we want her, because we know, like, you see it. Or who's the next guy you have? We see it. Like, what can we do? Um, so it's interesting. So you just have to, you got to trust it. And you just have to be okay with, like, waiting. What are the qualities that you look for in a talent? I look at how truly, truly, truly how disconnected they are with fashion for a star, right? When it comes to me and dressing them. I think about that because I, I love people who don't have time to focus on your job because they're overly focused on their job. So it allows you to show up and allows them to be ready for you. Because at that point, they don't want to think about that. They want to have the person in front of them that they hired, that they trust, that it, who knows them that they can release and let go. So for me, that's the most important thing. I look at someone who is like, not truly, they understand fashion, they get it, but not someone who's at home overly studying it, like it's their job. What is it about their talent that inspires you to think that, okay, this person might be around in 10 years or? Oh man, I think about that. It's just sort of not even something that you can touch it's literally an energy and when you're around movie stars i'm talking about quintessential hollywood movie stars it's this thing it's this feeling it's this like i, I don't even know it's a it's a thing it's literally a magical thing that goes over your body and then it's just like oh you're not from this world and I get that, I've, I get that from people now. Someone like a Storm Reed, like when I met Storm Reed at 14 and she sat across the table for me and I was like, what is this? This is bizarre. Like I think about Amanda Gorman when I first met Amanda and I was like, this isn't like, this is, this is strange. Like Michael B. Jordan has that thing. You cannot touch it. It is a feeling that comes over your body. It is literally like falling in love. That's what it feels like. That's the only way for me to describe it. It's a moment of you, you are 
immediately immersed into them. And it's like, you find yourself lost. You put this dress on Gab and you have this moment and that starts a snowball where you get inbound interest into you styling people. Mm -hmm. What was the process for you not knowing when you started this, any of these details that we've just shared, what was the process of discovery? And how did you like figure it all out? And how many times did you have to stub your toe or commit a faux pas along the way? It was sad. It was really sad once I started to like get into things and realize because I started my business off still like pulling from my archives of vintage stuff or, you know, going to different stores, like going to Barney's and and Neiman's and Saks and Bergdorf and buying stuff on my own personal credit card because I thought that's how it was supposed to go. I mean, it was horrible, but I would buy things, put it on clients and then return it. Like I would literally have bought like a tag gun to re-tag clothes because I also had this idea of like, they need to be in this in order to be received a particular way. But I didn't know any of it. I went for a very long time not knowing. And then one day I started gathering enough funds and I got an assistant who worked for a really big stylist. And she came in and she did everything. She was like, oh, you don't know this person? Oh, you don't? Oh, we're going to send it. To, so w- when is the fifth date? And, is, and she was like, da, 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 da. She was doing everything. And I was like, oh, no. What is happening? So I actually learned from an assistant who left a big stylist and came to me. So that's how I learned everything. It was wild. And then when I started sending emails, because at one particular point, people didn't know I was styling ex people. Because they were like, who is this, like ghost stylist who's styling these people and people are wearing Celine and it, it was just, it was bizarre. And then when those emails start happening, the heads of the PRs would like reach out and want to take me to lunch or dinner and then that's how I met people. And then still to today, I'm still learning stuff. I'm like, wait, we can do that? Well, well that's weird. So now that I'm behind the curtain, I, I don't really get, I don't have to experience those things that I experienced back then. So it's, you know, she was helpful and I'm grateful for her. How would you explain to someone that knows nothing about the industry what a stylist does? (sighs) Okay, so a stylist is someone who curates and creates identities and looks. So at some point in your career, you have a fashion profile. And what a fashion profile is, is... You can look at it as a, a playlist, right? And every time you go to a song, like that, that's, that song is for happy, that song is for sad, that song is a party song, that song is to get a little rough. Your fashion profile is the exact same thing. People can look at it and be like, wow, that person can do glamour. Wow, that person can do edge. Wow, that's street style. Wow, that's like, you know, sporty and cool. So you want to... A stylist helps you curate and create a fashion profile. Interesting. And and what are these sort of more parts of actually operating the business of being a stylist? A lot of people only see the the end. So you always see the photo that that we all get to experience. So that is that's the glossy pretty finale, right? But before you get to that, there's so many different things that happen. 
A, the, the, the minor, 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 minor first step thing is the talent has to be going to something, right? <laughs> so that has to happen. So when that happens, you have to figure out what that carpet looks like, what that moment looks like, and you start working backwards from that. So then you send out requests. So a request is you can shoot an email to a brand. It could be Louis Vuitton. It could be just, you know, any of groups of things and hoping that someone's going to respond to you and say, yes, I would love to dress that person. Can you please send me selects? So you send selects and then they respond back to you and they may say, this is the only dress we have. So you do that. You send, you do this wide net of that. It could be anywhere from like 10 to 50 emails at one time. You just send them all out. You get a response, you do that, you set up a fitting, right? You get the fitting together and you do the fitting with the client. And what a lot of people don't understand is in those particular moments, that's when your magic has to happen. Because now you have to convince a client to understand your point of view and why your point of view is so valuable and why it's going to transcend outside of just a carpet into a campaign or money while you sleep. And then once you go through that particular process, they wear it. You hope you get good publicity off of it. And it kind of becomes a snowball effect. And then people, by word of mouth or by just imagery, people reach back out to you. There's a really tricky part when it comes down to dollars and cents, though, right? No, no dress is free, right? So people will come in and they'll say, hey, I have 20, 25 cents, right? And it may take me $3.25 to actually complete the job for you. And a lot of people don't know that from the outside. They just think it's just like you get a pretty dress on someone or you get a cool pair of pair of sneakers for someone and then voila, it happens. There's so much money that is lost during this whole process. So you have to be, you have to really think about first going into styling as a business. Like how do I, how do I constantly lead with success, right? Financial success, because there's so many people in my business that are not here anymore. You don't hear about them because they are basically flat broke and we don't know their names anymore, right? So, and a lot of that started from just not starting from business. So you just have to really be about self-preservation financially when you come into this business, because it's also very quick and nothing's free. Nothing is free at all. What are the revenue streams for a stylist? Like obviously you have clients that pay you and presumably magazines and other media outlets that will pay you for your services. But I feel like that's only one portion of the sort of yeah, but magazines, this is, the, this is the funny thing, right? So in my particular world, there used to be this point of like hierarchy in a sense, right? If you worked in editorial, you were it. Like your voice, your, your, your eye was the only thing that counted. Now as the world has shifted, which has always been this way, celebrity styling is where the real money is. So now most people in editorial have, you can also notice most people in editorial are now leaning towards celebrity styling because we have made so much money compared to them. We've made so much money over the years, right? Where we were the ones who people would look down. I'm like, oh, you don't really know. You're just a celebrity stylist. We do editorial. You know what I mean? It's just kind of like, okay, whatever, dude. But now it's a different thing. So A, you don't make money in editorial. Well, as you say, coming from working at a magazine for- Listen, 40, you've hired me for years. you've yes. hired me for something it, before. It and is, I was like, 
it's but, enough to like, cover your Uber there. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but visually, to the consumer, to the planet, yeah. like this is big. I'm walking into these big buildings and I get all the clothes. Like there's this air about it. But when you really lay down the bank statements, most people on, on my particular side supersede those people. So just to be clear, there's a different, that's a different life. So editorial is a different life and that money is very different. And then when it comes to my side, it can be very lucrative. But you have to have talent that believes and supports you and is just open to see you thrive financially as well, right? There's also a space where, like, I've learned very early on that you have to diversify everything. So I do a lot of ghost designing, creative direction. I probably shouldn't say ghost design, but I do. I do loads of creative direction. I work really closely with a lot of the leading brands. And then I do other things outside of that. So you have to you have to just diversify. And a lot of people don't understand that just by just looking at what we give to the world on social or just through PR and publicity. You don't know a lot of the other stuff that goes on behind in order to keep that revenue constantly going and flowing. How do the economics of styling work? How does one get paid by a client? Is it an hourly rate thing or is it an event or are you getting a percentage of the overall spend? You have a rate, for example, for a musician, right? Like if you have a musician and their rate is a million dollars to perform there. So if you hire me for to dress you for the Oscars, the Grammys, I give you a rate. This is my rate. This is how much it costs, and this is what is involved in that cost. If you need a breakdown, this is why, this is how much, this is like when this number shifts again because of we went over. So it's it's mostly a rate. Some productions will say, hey, we're all in at this number. Or you have clients that's, you know, they come to you, they want to work with you, and I say, hey, this is my rate. And then sometimes it scares people. Sometimes you also use it to scare people and it backfires on you. And then they're like, oh, that's all. And then you're like, I got to do this. Or sometimes it people walk away because it's not what they it's not what they intended on paying. Or sometimes for myself, if I like somebody a lot, I'll say, hey, this is my rate, but I like you a lot. And there's so much here that we can build. And the trajectory of your career is so interesting and so cool. And I just want to be a part of it. Let's figure something out. But then, and all that money though, isn't, doesn't go directly into your pocket because you still have to pay assistance. You have to travel things across the country and back. It's the, it's the, it's the it is, it's never enough to be completely honest. It is never enough. And because you cannot quantify what styling is. And if we did, everybody would own, I, I would be sending out invoices all day long. I'm, you know, most of us are underpaid by the service that we have to do. And a lot of people would be really shocked if you knew how much a lot of us were getting paid for particular things. I can speak for myself. I still have to show up. And all I know how to do is work at this capacity in this level, even if it's like a $200 offering. You know what I mean? So I'm still going to give you a million dollar service for a $200 offering. One of the things that, that is so important is sort of a building this trajectory for the talent. And part of that, 
means making connections with them for brands, getting them into whatnot. As a stylist, do you get a vig on those relationships or how do you factor into that? It takes a very honest, kind, considerate human to look at everyone that is in the room when it's time to sign the contract and to ask the question, is Jason in this? Because I know Jason brought this to the table. Is he in this? That's all it takes. If you have clients that do that, you have capability of reaping the benefits of curating and creating this relationship that you basically brought to the table. Because for me, I'm the bridge in between the brand and the talent. It is my decision and my choice what lands on my rack, right? So I make the decision to say, I only want this brand on my rack, right? So at that point, I've introduced something to a client that client now falls in love with it. And now I can give you the story and the journey of this collection. And then I can also go back to the brand and say, you guys really make sense together. Without me, there may have never been a moment that that could have happened. So it, I'm super lucky that I just have clients who are like good humans and they understand the value of every, of everybody's job. So you sort of have to move forward in good faith for the most part? Yeah. Yeah, you really do. And you just, you have those real conversations with people. Like, I'm the first person and the last person a lot of times on set. Like, I'm there before my clients get there and I'm making sure that everything is the way they want it. I can go on set and be like, hey, Shane, I like this. Hey, he, mm, this just don't, this not going to feel right for him. So, like, I'm doing all these different jobs. Or like I'll look at a collection and it may be super provocative and I may be like, this doesn't work for my client, but like I can show you how this can work for my client. And this is somebody that you always wanted to work with, but the reason that they won't work with you is super provocative or super racy and it's super this type of thing. But watch this. And then there you have it. But again, we only see the finale of everything. I imagine it's a fairly sort of complicated algorithm that you have to run in terms of you are creating client relationships, you are managing brand relationships. The better your brand relationships, the better the clothes that you can pull for the clients, the better the brands, the higher the clients. Do you, in your own head, create a plan each time you add someone to your roster of like how you are going to help level them up? What I've done with my career is I didn't base it just strictly on a really beautiful look. My idea was how do I create an opportunity that's larger than just a look? Like how do I create an opportunity that is cultural, that is creates visual possibility? So for me, I've decided to push it way broader than just the clothes. And I think about what my brand relationships are like, right? So if I'm really, I'm really consistent and kind and courteous when it comes to my brands. But when I pick up a new client, I'm very conscious and clear with them what the possibility can be, right? So if you're someone who is number 16 on a call sheet, it might be really hard and you're new to the business, it might be really hard to get you in a leading brand. But if you work with somebody like myself who has great relationships, has has proven to create fashion worth, 
then there's a possibility you could show up in one of the leading brands. But it's it's very it's it's interesting. It's really interesting in the space of like how how you can how you can break someone by just fashion. So I was gonna say the role that you play in your clients' professional lives goes a lot deeper than just the clothes that they're wearing on the red carpet. Is that fair to say? It's extremely fair to say because I, I sometimes sit with people and I ask them, like, what is it that they really want? And you, they start telling you that. And sometimes you have to, like, I, again, I repeat, I don't say no, but I, I walk you outside of the no and take you to another place that's a, that makes more sense for you. And, and a lot of times that's what it's, it's about. Like, I have to tell certain people, like, oh, I really, really like this brand, this brand, this brand. I'm like, eh. Probably not the one for you. You should probably look at this brand because this brand speaks to you. This brand is going to understand it. You may like that just on the runway, but when you get it in front of you, that is not what you're going to, that's not what you're going to want. And now you're going to be annoyed. It also goes back to a conversation you and I was having earlier about like everybody assumes they can be a stylist, right? Everybody has an opinion about how the look showed up or what they would have done. But there's so many layers to that. And that goes to relationship. There's so many layers of being in a room with someone and knowing them personally and knowing that they hate the color blue. They hate the color white. There may be stipulations that you have to work around. Anybody can go and get a cool this and bring it to someone. You know, it's not as seamless as that. Once you realize like, relationships and people have boundaries about certain things or people have political beliefs about certain things or religious beliefs or just like it it's there's so many layers to just get to the final image that everybody sees and then everybody has a critique about you talk about this transition from where the more amateur type stylist did a lot of buying and the ones who were super pro pulled almost everything Mm -hmm. But the poll requires you to anticipate what people are going to want to be wearing in four to six months, mm-hmm. which is a very different thing from being able to look at what people in Soho are wearing and then going and buying it and mm-hmm. shooting someone in it. What's the process of convincing your client to, to step out on the edge and do something that may not be in fashion now, mm-hmm. but... When forecasting and things like that, for me, it's still very instinctual. Like I like something and I could, if I like something and I'm like, oh, that particular body type, that particular personality can hold this, it makes sense. So I do it all the time, but with clients, I'm super lucky that everybody that I've worked with longer than five years, they just trust and they've seen the proof. When I say let's push for this, they've seen the proof and it trans it translates into other things outside of that. I'm super lucky that I'm able to like go to someone and foreshadow what's to come and to say, hey, you can be the leading figure in this. And when this image comes out or when these kids go to go purchase something, you have resonated with them. Styling has this element that you can never predict how the ball is gonna bounce, right? And I'm sure this has happened where you are like in the room that you like the look, the talent likes the look, their team likes the look, and then they hit the red carpet and it turns into a meme or something. It is received poorly. Yes, it does happen to me. Uh- <laughs> it does that make you anxious? And are, are there any in- instances in your career where you think, where you are like, I've felt so good about this and 
I think early on in my career, I was I was a bit more anxious about it, and I would get stressed out about it. If like in this particular moment, when I took the photo on my phone, it translated exactly how I knew it was going to translate because I knew how to shoot that person. I knew the light, and then when they go to the carpet, the light was horrible. Like you're not seeing any of those things. So in the beginning, it would stress me out, and I would feel like a bit uncomfortable. Or is the client going to fire me because it wasn't received? Now, in my now right now, I have very clear conversations with clients. This particular look is for the fashion people. Everyone else on social media is not going to understand. They will end up purchasing this six months from now, and then they will forget everything that you that you wore and they said. So I'm very clear, very very clear, very clear. And some people can handle it, and some people are like, you know what, Jason? Can you just give me a Jane and T-shirt? And I'm like, okay, fine. But I also need you to understand, you're not going to track. It's not going to do anything. And if you want something to do something, you have to do something outside of the norm. Have you ever had a client come to you after the fact and maybe not apologize, but acknowledge that yeah. you were, in fact... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. A couple of times. A couple of times. Yeah, I, I, I've had it a couple of times. But like in those moments, I just make it a, I make it a laughable moment to just kind of be like, it, you are not for everybody. And, you know, for me, clothes are bonuses. Like, it's a bonus. And if you were, like, doing the thing that felt good and you felt good, and, like, that's, like, not to be cheesy, but that's the thing that tracks. That will track way further and deeper than just a good look. I use this this scenario all the time. There's so many people that will come to you and they will say, I want to look like Rihanna. I want this. I'm like, you don't want to look like Rihanna. You want what Rihanna feels like when you see Rihanna. You, you could probably wear the exact same thing that Rihanna wore, but it's not going to translate that way. Rihanna gives you a feeling. It's like when you look, when people come to me for a shoot and they're like, we want to shoot this. We, they show you a photo. We want to shoot this. I'm like, you're not even talking about the clothes. You're talking about the mood and the vibe. So it has nothing to do with that. So if you can translate your mood, your vibe, your confidence, like your commitment to the look, that's it. It has nothing to do with the clothes. It has nothing to do with the clothes, the glam, the lighting that day. It's the mood and your commitment to who you are. What is the difference between styling a man versus styling a woman? At this particular point, there is no difference. When I started, there was kind of a difference. But right now, there isn't a difference. I think, well, men's fashion is like... It's leading, it's leading everything right now. You can go to any place across the planet and you will see a guy with a point of view. Men's fashion is so, it's so robust. So now there's more options, right? So guys are just a bit more interested. Men being more interested though, does that make it, does that make your job more difficult or? Guys are horrible right now. Dudes are horrible right now when it comes to fashion. It's the worst. It's pretty funny because they're so involved and everything is very competitive. They're more concerned how people perceive them versus when I when I started with just strictly women, it was like very like, oh, this person had this on, this person had that on. I, I experience it so much more with men now. And I'm just like, I sit back and I'm like, wow, this is so strange. But it's also a light switch that happens for them. I started with some of them and they weren't like that. 
And like all of a sudden there's a light switch and it's like, whoa, I got it. Oh, 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 oh. And it's like, oh, I need these. I need these. Oh, well, what, what about those new retros? Oh, okay. So I was thinking that you saw that Kim Jones thing that they just did with Dior. And I'm like, no, I actually, I didn't see it. And it's my job, bro. I didn't see it. But it's interesting how that, how, how it's shifting. And when you look at the dollars and cents, men are spending so much more money on clothes right now. That's crazy. Didn't realize. That. Yeah, it's wild. It's really, really wild. I notice with women, it's more of a mood. It's like, this is what I feel right now. This is what I want to convey. This is how I want people to feel when they see me. And it's all, and which is sometimes is a bit more interesting because you get to unlock a different part of someone that you didn't know. It's just I have clients who are like super conservative and then all of a sudden they hit this mark and they're like, you know what? I want to be seen in a different light. I want to be sexy. I want to feel sensual. I want to feel strong. And then it's like, oh, cool. Like, this is, this is wild. Now we get to find a new person that we didn't know. And then we start going on this journey of learning like this person. In the world of celebrity styling, there are a finite number of stars. And I would imagine that there is some competition between stylists. Mm -hmm. But there's also collaboration. Mm -hmm. How do you think about those relationships? And how would you, if you were talking to a aspiring stylist, how to manage their sort of peer relationships? I tell anybody, I'm just like, talk to people. There's, there's enough to go around. There's no need to be competitive. Every client, like, I, like there's people who want to work with, there's clients that want to work with me. They're just not for me. Like, and there's clients that I want to work with that work with someone else, but I'm like, that person is good for me. But it's just, it's, it's fine. Like, and then I forget about it because somebody else pops up. But the idea of being competitive and being combative and just being angry and upset because that person has that person or you want that job, it's like, it's enough to go around, but talk to people. I was going to say, what, are there ethical norms or like rules of engagement that stylists respect? You're not supposed to slide in another client's DM. I've had clients reach out to me. And I'm friends with the, the stylist. And then I'll call the stylist. Hey, heads up, this person just reached out to me. What's up with that? And if you're a solid person, you would be, most people are just like, wow, that person's wild or blah, 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 blah. Or I knew this was coming. Actually, you would be really good for them. Or watch out, Jason, they're wild. So that's that way. But I don't, I don't come from a space of poaching people either because I believe the same way you get people is the same way you lose them. So I don't come from that space. But you're not, I mean, it's also business. Nobody owns anybody. No talent belongs to anybody. They can wake up today and say, you know what? I don't want to work with Jason anymore. That's the nature of the business. Somebody told me the most promising thing in Hollywood is that people leave you. That is a fact. People leave you. Is that difficult because you spend so much time with your clients and for the most part, it seems like you have really friendly relationships that at least straddle the line between professional and personal. Have you ever had an awkward moment where either you decide it's time for you to stop working with someone or for them, they decide that they're yeah. ready to move on? One of my day ones was still the best of friends, but now she works with someone else. But... Going back to what you're saying, it's like growth and journey. Our journey stopped. Our growth had stopped. We hit the top of the mountain. We had landed. We did everything. There's nothing else. There was nothing else per se for me. And I felt like what that person wanted was something else that I that was that was not where my life was going. That's where not where my that was not where my career was going. That was not my 
point of view. But you have to be okay with it. Yes, it stings, but it's like a shot. It hurts just for a second, then it's over with, you know? But once you understand going into something that you don't own this person, it's not that. Yes, there's people do bad business. People do really kind of nasty, not nice things and how they decide to leave you or, you know, go a different way. But also it's just like you you realize that it's it's a business. It's really, really a business and everybody is figuring out what works for them. Much of Jason's work culminates in the sort of glamorous spectacles that most people only witness from afar. Beautiful, famous people wearing beautiful, famous clothes at places like the Oscars or the Met Gala or Cannes. But as he's quick to point out a number of times during our conversation, there's a lot of distinctly unglamorous work that goes into making those moments. By its nature, creative work rests on a knife's edge between accolades and derision. And if you put something out into the world, it's either going to be applauded or it's going to be jeered. Jason's creativity is particularly exposed to this dichotomy because he's first got to placate the massive but often fragile egos of very high-profile people simply to get to the point where his work is shown to the public. My head hurts just thinking about the psychological maneuvering he has to navigate on a daily basis. Of course, there are friendships too. His long-standing personal and professional relationship with Gabrielle Union now includes working with her husband, Dwayne Wade. I interviewed Dwayne in season two of Idea Generation, and I wanted to ask Jason how he came to work with the NBA legend. It's fascinating to hear Jason talk about how the styling choices he and Dwayne have made have provided a foundation for Dwayne's emergence as a modern-day Renaissance man. But before that, I had to ask a little bit more about the mind games that make up such an important part of the work that he does. What would you say are like the least glamorous parts of being a uber elite stylist? Listen, there, I have a lot, I've seen a lot of weird stuff, but I think the, the one thing is people just don't say thank you. <laughs> You know what I mean? I think that's the that's the most bizarre thing. People don't say thank you. And it's also because it's so fast and you may feel it or you may have, you know, you may you may feel like very thankful, but people don't say thank you enough. And it's the most bizarre thing to watch from adults. It seems like being a stylist, you are part time therapist, obviously helping them with their sort of image and, and almost like a PR type of role in certain ways. When you take on a client, like how many hours a week are you typically engaging with each individual? It depends for me personally. Once I decide to say yes to someone, I'm fully in, I'm all in. We talk more, we talk a lot and not just only about clothes, but we can talk about all type of things. And it also helps inform me how to pull clothes from you. Like if I was talking to someone, they're like, oh, this is going on in my life. Bob, 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 did you see this? Oh, I want to do that. It helps inform me how to pull for you. Cause I'm like, oh, you're in this space. So maybe we should just do strictly super tailored. Like, let's do this. And then they show up and their, their thing is like, wow, how did you know I needed this? Because the biggest thing is you have to listen. People tell you exactly what they want. So it's really interesting how it becomes, it's super emotional. It's just really emotional. And you, sometimes I leave fittings and I can't talk. Like I go home and I just need to like shut off because you, you, you're in a space of empowering people all day long. And, you know, for me, like I feel rewarded from it, but also I never realized how taxing it is sometimes too. 
where you're in a space of uplifting, 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 and your battery is, you know, your battery is really low. So I have to sometimes go home, shut the door and just like, and recharge. Do you have a set number of clients that you can deal with at any one point in time or? I think I have a lot, I have a lot right now, but I'm in a space, I'm super lucky to be in a place in a space where I can say no. And at this point in my career, when it comes to someone not being as recognized or not being a star, I get to really hone in and like really dissect and be like, wow, like there's people that I meet. I'm like, that's a star. Like, and I want to work with that person. Like, I know you may not have the funds or the means or the whatever, but I want to be here from start to finish with you. So I, I'm in a lucky space where I can kind of pick, but I have a, I have a lot of clients and I have a lot of like big clients, like big clients. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like so much of styling is about this sort of psychological chess game with the talent to get them to into a place where they feel confident and comfortable. Mm -hmm. It's like what I tried to do outside of the clothes is the to get you to re-believe in yourself. And as wild as that sounds, it's like in a lot of cases, what we don't understand is like when you put that extra, when you're putting these layers on to a human form, that is the first thing that we see, right? So you're trying to get someone to first re-believe in themselves and understand that all the other stuff is just bonus. If somebody doesn't receive it, then it's like, I, then I'm like, I'm not enough. I'm not a this. I'm not a that. But if you, if your baseline is belief and like self-belief and like, oh, I'm solid, everything else is a bonus. And then you find yourselves in a lot of conversations that I have with clients. Then we start laughing because most people are sheep. They follow, right? So we start laughing and we start seeing stuff and we're like, oh, or you look at collections that people have done and everybody like you look at how Saint Laurent was all about super kind of crazy rock star super tight tight everything tight and everybody was like oh I can never I can never then you see it's all over the place you think about like you know what Virgil did and like people are like that's weird that's strange that's oh my god but then now it's just like everybody like you can't like it's it's it is that it is just like once you have that solid foundation of like self-belief and like I'm solid it everything just seems to track and translate so much more. So when you meet with a new client, are there any red flags that are an immediate, this is not going to work? Uh, when they, what I be with a client, they give you a red flag. Most of the red flags are when they like overly talk about like, I'm a star and I'm going to be a star and have all these big things coming out. And then let me show you these photos of what I want to look like. And I'm always like, ooh, yeah, no, it's just not going to work. Or if like, there's so many people like they if a client comes to meet me and they're with like their manager or a publicist or an agent and they're not alone i'm just like it's not gonna work how do you navigate that because i mean everybody has their teams and you know i just think at this point in my career i'm really upfront with people and like i can't do my best work and i can't show up the way you want me to show up and the way that i know i should show up if there's so much noise around. Like I'm into listening to good stuff and I like to turn good stuff up, but when it's bad, nobody wants to hear that. Turn it down and turn it off. You know, there's a lot of times when you when you're fittings with people, and I, I say this to a lot of people, there there is a really amazing blueprint that's already built for fashion. And if you 
some way, somehow figure out a way to make that blueprint work for you. The success rate is so high. And then there's times when like, I'll put a, just a black dress on someone. or I'm like, you should wear this beautiful, nothing Tom Ford, super tailored suit. And people are like, oh, I just, why? We should have been in a red suit or a yellow dress. And I'm like, mm, no, there's a reason behind everything that I do. And I just don't, again, it goes back. I just don't put clothes on people to put clothes on people. There's a reason for everything. So the fact that I put that black dress on you and I told you to wear no jewelry and to pull your hair back, there's a reason for that. For me, it's just like, you're a new star. I want people to recognize you and remember your face. There doesn't need to be a lot of distraction. And a lot of times people don't understand that. They wanna, they wanna come out and they want to peacock instantly. That's not a point of view. Like we want people to kind of understand who you are and get to know you. And then you create an evolution. You come out peacocking, there's no other place to go. Is it hard to work in an environment where the value of your creativity and, and your work product is so subjective and so subject to scrutiny? I live in a world where every day I hope that somebody likes me. Every day. When I bring clothes to a client, I hope they like it. And if they like it, that means they like me. If they don't like it, that means like, oh, what did I do wrong? So I live in a world like that all the time. So that's the space that I have to live in, but then I also have to figure out in that space what makes me happy. How do you balance need for <laughs> affirmation <laughs> and also, yeah. I think for me, it's just like, it, it's really easy. I just try to have people in my life that like, I can laugh about this beautiful chaos that I work in. And I try to find spaces where I can disconnect so I'm not jaded. So I won't go to my client's movie premieres. I won't sit to a movie premiere. I'll go to the movies by, I'll go to the movies outside of that. Like I figure out spaces that I can disconnect and become a consumer again, which is for me, it's, it's, it's so fun. It, it enlightens me. It gives me space to reimagine and recreate. So I just try to like, completely disconnect myself from the business. In addition to your styling business, you also have a design studio um, with your husband, Adair Curtis, and you guys do all kinds of different projects from creative direction to interior design stuff. What is the key to operating a business with your spouse? Don't talk about work at home. We try not to talk about work at home. We try to like leave work at the office and it's like that but we also we're two different separate humans like my point I'm very instant like my decisions are instant I don't need to sleep on anything I just it's yes or no and for him it's the opposite it's very yes the digestate has to do all these different things so for us that's the most complicated part about working together but I guess that could be with anybody any partner partnership that you have but the key for us is like, we don't, we don't talk about it. And then if it comes up, it's so quick and it's a shut off. It's like, Hey, quick question. Can you, you have this morning? Can you do it? And I'm like, yes, no. And then it's, that's it. So it's only urgent questions that have to be answered. In addition to these other parts of your sort of more core business done a lot of punditry and reality TV over the last three or four years, how do you see that 
fitting into the sort of larger arc of your career? I think it's, for me, it's just about more exposure. It's more exposure and it also gives you um, a stamp of authority. You know, I just shot um, Next in Fashion again, the Netflix show, I did an Amazon. So I do all these things in a space of authority to walk people through and let them know what it looks like on the side. And sometimes it's just giving pure advice on what to do and what not to do. Do you enjoy it? I love it. I, it's so, it, it feels like styling. I go in and I show up and it's, it's good. And it feels like the beginning of my career when I got to meet new people all the time and just talk. One of the things that I found interesting is obviously you have this very longstanding relationship with Gab and you're around Dwayne for years and years and years. And but it wasn't until about two years ago that you started styling him. Mm-hmm. How did you make that transition? I, I would imagine it becomes uh, loaded and higher stakes when you have a, yeah, when you have 10 years of friendship. Yeah, that was really interesting. I think that his transition into um, this kind of like, this new version of a Renaissance man. You know, he's an executive producer. He is an entrepreneur. He is the most amazing father. He is like all these icons and goats in all these different arenas. And what we've leaned into in this particular moment with him, and he does it so well, is leisure. Like his luxury is pure leisure and everybody wants a part of that. Everybody wants to kind of figure out how can I look this particular way, but also be so comfortable, but also, but also, but also, but also. So that relationship was interesting. And like, it's it's quite special compared to my other relationships because it feels like it's like a brother thing. It feels like that where it's just like I'm always trying to like um, support my my brother to do something. You know, and it's just like oh, you should do this. Oh, can you? Uh, it, it's always that. There's never any like. There's never any hesitation. There's a lot of like banter and good times and laughing and like. We particularly don't talk as much about fashion as we talk more about um, style ideas and just kind of like, how, how, how does this make me, like, how does this style make me feel? Or like, who am I, who am I today? Is it Harry Belafonte? Is it like Miles Davis? Am I giving you full on, you know, executive producer vibe where I just want to be smooth and feel like I have a cigar? Like it's it's those type of things that which are really interesting to know that somebody who comes from being such a like an honest and known athlete to be in a space where you're almost talking to someone whose everything feels like uh you know, the, the creative direction behind the identity of a, an, a character in a movie with him. That's crazy. What is the difference between a look and a moment? Um, wow, that's a good one. What's the difference between a look and a moment? Okay, so a look is something that works. It's work, it's easy, it's, it's, it's now, right? A moment is a moment. It is going to it's going to live and we are able to identify when, where, how, and why. That is a moment. A moment in time for me is like Angelina Jolie in Europe in a silver 
Versace chainmail dress. A moment is, you know, Dwayne Wade in this beautiful custom Burberry. A moment is Michael B. Jordan in this canary yellow Virgil Abloh for Louis Vuitton. Like, it's Yar Shahidi at the Met walking up the steps in Dior. It's Storm Reed at the premiere. It's like a product. It's like, those are moments and moments reflect on inspiration, possibility, and though that lands for moments for me, so I think of I think of a lot of things that I've done that's a moment, and there's there's a lot of looks that I've done, probably more looks than moments because we live in a we live in a space where everything's very quick, so the moments take time. One of your more uh, viral moments recently was a shot of Michael B. Jordan. Uh, with the guns out. How did that happen? Um, We, what a lot of people won't know is like, he's in the middle of editing a movie and he had, he went, had to, he had to go to a premiere and we had 15 minutes. We had to fit him, do the alteration and all of that. And I came in there, I was like, listen, I want you to wear this. And he was like, what? And I was like, you should wear this. And he was like, all right, cool, whatever. And what, what was this? It was a sleeveless Chanel vest with like these high-waisted navy blue pants and it just went everywhere and it kind of started a trend wherever and after you see that everyone any guy that works out who's a you know a celebrity has now walked onto a red carpet with no sleeves chanel men's or chanel's women's it was a vintage chanel's i don't know if it was men's or women's but it fit <laughs> it fit. Um, it was vintage. It was wild, but it was like it was. It was really interesting because it was just like one of those things. He was like, "Are we doing this?" And I was like, "We doing it." And then he wasn't even on the carpet for five seconds. Or it was like it just went wild. But you know, that's the that's a really that's a really important moment to share with the client when you can go into a space and be like, "This is what we should do," and. Now we look back on it and we're like, and you see certain things pop up and we're like, kind of was out of the curve. Like, it's inter- it's really, really interesting. But that was that was pretty freaking cool. That's crazy. Um, so when you look at sort of, you know, how your career has grown over the last few years, and it's really blossomed pretty dramatically in the last three or four years. Um, what are the, what are the ambitions? What are the things that the itches you have not scratched yet? Where, where do you want to go? I the, the one thing for me is, is still on the list of things that I want to do. I want to I really want to find myself at a creative director position someplace because I do it every day with brands anyway and with clients. I want to go to like you know, I I really want to do like something like really interesting like almost like bringing back United Colors of Benetton or bringing back like The Limited or Esprit or something. I want to go into something very nostalgic and do a creative direction and kind of revamp that. That for me, in my career, that is the one thing that I'm so gung-ho on and that's what I'm working towards. Jason's gift for pulling from and combining his unique set of cultural references would seem like an obvious asset to any number of large legacy brands. I hope he gets the opportunity to cross that creative director role off his list soon. I hope you found Jason's career path and creative mindset as educational, entertaining, and inspiring as I have. 
His ability to maintain a love and appreciation for the arts, while constantly finding ways to profitably apply that love to his work, gets at the heart of the stories that Idea Generation is all about. I'm grateful to Jason for his candor and for his willingness to share all the shiny bits, but also the far less glamorous aspects of his trade as well. For Idea Generation, I'm Noah Callahan-Bever, and thanks for tuning in. See you next week. Thanks for tuning in to the Idea Generation podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do us a favor and show your support by leaving us a rating, or better yet, a review on your podcast platform of preference. It only takes a few seconds out of your day, but it can make a world of difference in helping others discover our show. And of course, don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. Idea Generation is a podcast that tells the stories of dreamers who turn their most ambitious ideas into reality. These are ultimately stories of triumph, but they are not without moments of doubt and difficulty along the ride. Tres Generaciones is a tequila that champions moments of perseverance. Tres is 100% blue agave, triple distilled tequila with an unrivaled smooth flavor profile. No one's creative journey is ever perfect, but your tequila can be.